Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor Martha Clokey talking about how viruses can improve our health. It's a great pleasure to actually come down here and talk about viruses that I think will um, be very important in terms of protecting ourselves from even more disastrous disease scenarios. I'll probably interchangeably use the word virus, bacteriophage and phage. <laughs> so a bacteriophage is a specific virus that only infects a bacteria. Okay, so phage means eat, bacteriophage, bacteria eater. And all bacteria that have been studied have these natural viruses that infect them. And they're really, really specific. So in the same way that a virus which infects us won't generally uh, infect another species like your cat, these viruses are very specific to the bacterial host. So what I want to tell you today is a little bit about why I think we need phages, um, the sort of setting, a little bit about antimicrobial resistance, and then I will talk in a bit more detail about what a phage is, and then give you a few little insights into the work that we're doing in our lab to make bacteriophage technology closer to being able to be used. So there have been a few headline-grabbing images such as uh, this. this. This is a woman called uh, Stephanie Strathody. Unfortunately, her husband in 2015 contracted a very nasty Acinetobacter infection, so an internal infection of his pancreas. He was on holiday in Egypt, and they could not treat this infection. So they went, flew him to Germany. He nearly died. Of, they couldn't save him in Germany. They flew him back to where he was from in um, San Diego. She was basically on his very, very last um, breaths, and she being quite, she was quite influential. She was a professor of epidemiology at Berkeley, so she was able to activate uh, people who would not normally be activated to get phages to her husband. For example, the American Army, uh, one of the major biotech companies that's very active in phage research, and also the only publicly funded phage institute in the States, which is in Texas A&M. So she got hold of these phages and was able to work with quite a pioneering doctor who gave him uh, phages and he survived. So she wrote a book about this. So if you were a world famous epidemiologist with a psychiatrist husband and access to all these networks, you can get phage therapy. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, what, as I said, I'd like to do is to talk about how to, the work we're doing to try to ensure that everyone will be able to access this. So not only um, has COVID-19 stopped me uh, coming here, it's also killed about 5 million people globally, it's estimated. However, if to put that into context, it's estimated if we don't do anything about antimicrobial resistance, by the year 2050, 10 million people will die across the globe. So it's really, really um, extremely worrying. And people like Sally Davis, the former chief medical advisor, has, has really been very good at trying to get people to realize the importance of this health issue, which really doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. And we can see that the areas that are gonna be particularly problematic are uh, in Africa, Southeast Asia, but also it'll be a huge problem globally, microbes travel. So I thought it might be nice just to put antibiotic resistance into context. So most people know the sort of folklore 
tale, which is based on some truth that Alexander Fleming was a little bit tardy. He didn't put his plates away. So he'd been doing lots of experiments with bacteria. And as he was chucking his plates away the weekend, he saw that some of the bacteria had been killed. And he later realized this was a bacterium penicillium, which makes penicillin. And then after that, that was the sort of initiation of the development of antibiotics. So two thirds of the antibiotics we use are just natural products that other like bacteria or fungi make in the sort of bacterial bacterial warfare. So if you go to anywhere like a bit of soil, you'll see there's probably 10 to the 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 individual bacterial cells in there, and they're fighting with each other for space. So they're making stuff to kill each other so that the other one, so that they can then dominate. So that's so antibiotic resistance um, is a really old uh, phenomena. You can go back to samples that from the Permian and, and for, uh, sort of like many, many tens of thousands of years old, and you can find evidence of antibiotic resistance. So it's a natural phenomenon, but we've massively precipitated it and accelerated it by indiscriminately using uh, antibiotics for agriculture, for uh, often incorrectly to treat human disease. It's seen as just like a, you're sick, have antibiotics, just take them. The, the dangers of overusing them really weren't appreciated. This is the way we test antibiotic sensitivity in a lab. Can you see these little discs here? These are, um, these, this, this cloudiness is bacteria, and these discs are antibiotic, so they've killed the bacteria around them. Now on this plate, you can see, especially those two at the bottom, those antibiotics are no longer effective. So this is, this is the, um, a, a, a sort of first glance way we do, can quantify this in other ways, but this is the way that we sort of tend to, to see how sensitive bacteria are to certain antibiotics. So we can see this phenomena of bacteria becoming more and more resistant. And this is a kind of um, scenario that we see time and time and time again. You have three different species of bacteria. And all I want you to see is the numbers are going up. So this is in one hospital, a doctor's monitoring the amount of resistant uh, that they see in bacteria that are infecting their patients. So there's more and more resistance. And we have this sort of horrible perfect storm in that the amount of novel antibiotics coming on the market is going down and down and down. That's because they're expensive to, to produce. It's, it's really horribly driven by economics because if you make an anti-obesity uh, drug, for example, you'll use that for many months. If you make an antibiotic, you'll use it perhaps for a, a week. Um, there's also huge stipulations on people producing antibiotics, um, a lot of stewardship surrounding them, so you shouldn't overuse them. So we have this perfect storm of an increasing problem and a decreasing amount of options available. However, my talk hopefully is going to be quite positive and not too much doom and gloom. <laughs> <laughs> Having set that painted that horrible scenario, <laughs> I do believe that viruses, which are also part of that sort of milieu of bacteria, bacteria, fungi fighting, these viruses have been looked at far less than bacteria in terms of being able to, to kill and produce compounds that kill bacteria. So we have a whole treasure chest of viruses that we can explore. And the number of these is absolutely vast. So if you were to take um, all of the bacteriophages on Earth and align them head to tail, they would make a path that reached 200 million light years away. So it would go beyond the visible universe into the Andromeda galaxy. So there's a vast number of them, more than any other biological entity on Earth. So every bacteria that exists anywhere, there's about between 10 and 100 phages that can attack it. So what we have to do is find them <laughs> and to find them for those bacteria that we're interested in killing and figure out how they're doing it. This is actually what they look like if you were then to look to, to, at them under an electron microscope. They look ostensibly a little bit similar to each other. They all have icosahedral heads. They have different shapes of tails, depending on the three main morphologies of them. That specificity of interaction is led largely from the interactions of the uh, tail fibres and the outer cells. Now, although they look a little bit similar, 
when you look at their, their genomes, you can actually find nothing in common, the ones that bet bet between each other. So it's, it's quite shocking, even when you show people like, um, people are used to looking at comparing DNA of and genomes of bacteria. These viruses are just hugely, hugely diverse. So we're more related to bacteria than they are to each other <laughs> very often. So, so one of the challenges we have is trying to make sense of, you know, just how they work. It can be a bit overwhelming. So here we have a phage and it's going to try and find itself. So the specificity of that interaction is based between the little tail fibers, the proteins right at the end of the tail fibers and the receptors on the cell. So it's just trying to find a cell with the right receptors. Oh, look, it's found it. It's great. So then what happens is the these inner secondary tail fibers, they come down. So the phage is committed at that point. It changes the shape. See that the bottom structure changes shape. The sheath contracts. The DNA then goes into that bacterial cell through that tube. And that bacteria is now doomed. It's no longer a bacteria. <laughs> it's a viral making machine. So that's how these viruses work. They're highly specific and, and it's, it, a lot of the battle that takes place between them is on, on that surface level between those receptors and the outer surface of the protein. Okay, so why are bacteriophages going to be important in terms of novel antimicrobials? Well, the pros are, as I've been saying, they're very, very specific. They work on bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. So, you know, we already arguably, we, we have many bacteria now that we can't treat, so they're really good for that. A lot of bacteria, they grow as a biofilm. So when you have an infection, it doesn't, it's not just a free living bacteria. The bacteria settle and they, they give out sort of sugars and uh, poly, all different sort of, sort of very sticky mucoidal layers that antibiotics can't penetrate. So the bacteria might be sensitive to the antibiotics, but the antibiotics can't get there. Whereas phages, they, they, they've evolved to get those bacteria <laughs> in those settings. So they make uh, enzymes that allow the phages to penetrate. And actually, you can often work together, use antibiotics with viruses, and because the, the phages work to chisel into the bacteria, then the antibiotics can get it. People do really big, long screens to try to find novel antimicrobials on, say, large-scale peptide screens. Um, Whereas actually just these, these enemies just, just are there. So it makes sense to actually try and find something that, that has evolved to kill that thing you're interested in. So to me, it's a no brainer that we should try to find them. So if they are so good, why are we not using them already? Well, maybe we'll look back in a hundred years time and think that antibiotics just really delayed us from developing phages properly for a long, long time. But the difficulties in using a phage is that that specificity Although it's really useful because they'll clear, you can clear an infection, for example, in the gut and that all of the beneficial microbes that you need will be maintained. But it does mean you need a much tighter knowledge of what you're trying to kill. OK, so you need to you can't just chuck in any old phage. If you've got uh, an E. coli that's causing a bladder infection, you need to know exactly what subtype of E. coli that is and that your phage is will be effective on that strain. So they can be specific, not even just to species level, but to strain level. And there can be many strains within the species. That specificity, it's a sort of double-edged sword. And um, it was really the specificity was one of the reasons why phage therapy stopped being developed. But now we're thinking, we're much more enlightened now. We understand the fact we want to actually not just blast everything. <laughs> we want to sort of preserve that sort of ecology of the microbiota. For some bacteria, they're really, really easy to find, um, like E. coli, Pseudomonas, Salmonella. They're really s simple to find phages for those kind of things. But other bacteria that cause us quite a lot of issues, phages can be really hard. And I've inadvertently in my lab specialised in searching for the hard ones. I don't, I don't know why. Um, but um, so they, they can, that can be tricky. There's also a huge amount to be done in terms of, of the pharmacology of a phage that works very differently to a 
uh, a standard antibiotic and that you've got a self-replicating medicine at the site of infection. But even the way that you do the pharmacological studies that you need to do is quite different to the way that you do them for a, a, a one compound. Um, and the reg regulatory framework is not trivial, but the regulators are really, um, are, I'm finding really helpful, especially in the veterinary world. The veterinary medical director has to regulate all veterinary products. And they've been brilliant at telling us what data we need to get. Okay, so let's think a little bit about the history of phages. As I said, they're not a new technology. They were discovered over 100 years ago by this chap on the left side. His name is Frederick Tort. He's an Englishman. And I had the pleasure actually of meeting his uh, granddaughter. He was really happy that I mentioned him because most people just mentioned the next guy, this chap in the, in the middle, Felix Durrell. But actually, Frederick Tort described his observations of phages in The Lancet. Um, but then the war came along and he never got to go back to his research. But the granddaughter told me that it was always a really sadness in the family that, that he, he couldn't and he was really proud of what he'd found. Anyway, Felix Durrell did go on and, and as soon as he found phages, he quite quickly went to using them therapeutically and he, he developed them to treat skin and uh, intestinal infections. And actually his first book that he wrote on this subject was exactly 100 years ago. <laughs> so that's how long phages have been known about and used for. But as I said, after the discovery in about, of antibiotics in about the 40s, most phage research was really discontinued in terms of using them therapeutically. But instead phages were used for, they, um, a lot of basis of all, a lot of things we know about just biology and genetics came from phages, like the fact that DNA is, the gene is our genetic code and not a protein. That was done by phage work. They blended up phages and stuck the proteins in one place and the DNA in the other, DNA replicated. Loads and loads of things that we know about biology come from phages, but they stopped being investigated therapeutically. Um, however, in France, they continued to use them until about the 70s. Or if you, if you think, if you already uh, know something about phages, you might think, well, you might know that they were, they were Russian or Eastern, they were used a lot in those parts of the world. And that is because there was a young Georgian scientist who was visiting um, Felix Durrell at the Pasteur Institute, and he was trained by him to use phages. And he set up this institute, the George Eliava Institute. This is like Mecca for phage biologists. We all love to go there. <laughs> it's really, it's where our subject, we sort of get, we all, we all sort of slightly fall in love with our organisms and then we go there. And then you can see it's really interesting. You go to the pharmacy, there's people snaking around the queue to get their phage preparations. And what they, they do is they, they have these vials that uh, have about maybe 36 different viruses in. So they'll have six viruses for six major infections. And then the Georgian scientists will just, they're endlessly screening. And then they, they update their mixtures depending on what strains are around. So poor old um, Eliava had bad or well, unfortunate taste in girlfriends because he fell in love with the girlfriend of the, uh, the head of the secret police. So he was executed by Stalin. So then, and then Felix Durrell never went back actually after that. But luckily Eliava had taught enough doctors and research scientists about phages that the, the institute was maintained. And as I say, to this day, they, they still have a lot of, um, well, it's, it's had a massive uh, resurgence of, of, of interest. But actually in the 80s, you can see they, they were preparing tons of phages each year that was being used all throughout the USSR for different purposes. Okay, and this is how they were used. So that's, that's how you buy them today. I've got loads in my fridge at home because every time I go to Georgia, they always say, oh, we'll give you these in case your kids get sick. So, <laughs> so um, I, I have lots of these, these mixtures which we've used in different projects. So they, the way that they use those is generally orally or they embed them into dressings to, to get rid of superficial infections. Um, you can aerosolize phages. You can use them in conjunction with surgery. This is a picture of how the, uh, some, um, the Georgians use them. They impregnate little dressings. So they can be, they're used in quite a lot of places to treat diabetic foot ulcers, a, ma a major problem associated with diabetes and amputation. So they're used quite effectively to save limbs, uh, particularly in Russia. 
You can also use them prophylactically to prevent infection. And actually, this seems like a really good use. In our lab, we've, got, we've looked at lots of different systems. And if you can get phages into, a, into an area first, you can actually completely prevent an infection from forming. So I think, for example, Clostridium difficile, which is a bug people often get in hospitals, a gut infection. If you could give old people who are vulnerable, who are being given a broad spectrum antibiotic for another reason, if you could give them phages to stop C. diff, this could be a really, really good use for phages. And there are some places actually already in the world where you can receive phage therapy. There's several centers have popped up recently in the US. The one I know best is uh, my friend Ben Chan, who works at Yale. And he's worked with a, very closely with a clinician called Jonathan Koch. And they, they mainly work on cystic fibrosis patients. There's not a huge number, but they've saved about 60 people so far that were, had antibiotic resistant pseudomonas infections in their lungs. Um, so they isolate the strains of pseudomonas from these patients, they check the phages work, and they have a permission from the FDA in these compassionate multidrug resistant cases to be able to use phages. There are centers in, in obviously in Tbilisi, Russia, Poland, and there's a big center actually, there's a phage conference going on at the moment in, in Belgium. There's a, some rather good phage biologists at the military hospital in, in Brussels, who again have saved probably hundreds of, of lives. It's a pretty small scale, but that, that there is some action in this sort of compassionate phage space. But what I'd like to do, and I'll spend the next sort of part of my talk just talking you through three little areas that we're mainly doing in our lab and phage research. So the first area is about phage discovery. So in order to use phages, you need to actually have them first. So first of all, you have to isolate them. And in contrast to the situation 100 years ago, we can actually go straight from isolating them to looking at their genomes. So we can understand much more about their biology very early on. Then we can also build up nice collections of them, which we can use as our starting point for further study. We spend a lot of time studying their behavior, so trying to find those aggressive phages. And then also seeing how they work together. So when you use phages, you don't want to, we don't want to repeat all the problems that we've made with antibiotics. We actually want to be able to um, minimize resistance. And you can do that if you use phages in combination. So you make cocktails of phages. And we've also spent quite a lot of time um, developing good model systems. So before we go into animals and humans, we can learn a lot by growing phages on bacteria in, for example, on top of human skin cells or on biofilms or in artificial guts. There's lots of ways where we can get really, really useful data. So we do a lot of just fundamental research that underpins what we will then do with our clinical work. The ultimate game is to try to make phage treatments to be able to give to people that are sick. But at the moment, there's quite a big disjunct between people like me and I, I get and then people and doctors who have got patients dying. So I'll get I'll regularly get emails saying, "Oh dear Martha, my patient's dying. They've got this." And and uh, at the moment, there's not an awful lot I can do. You know, we can have a dialogue. The occasional doctor is is, is game and, and wants to try phage therapy. But until we get better clinical trial data, that that's going to remain the exception rather than the rule. So uh, what I'm doing uh, increasingly is I have somebody working in my lab who's half the time in my lab and half the time she's a, a consultant at the hospital in Leicester. So working with infectious diseases. So she's sort of in in the right circle, talking the right language, and knowing what <laughs> it's really really helpful to be able to direct that whole research. And I have a similar thing with veterinary research as well. I work quite closely with vets and um, feed manufacturers. Because if you can stop antibiotic resistance building up in the, in the animals we eat, because they use the same antibiotics to treat animals that they, treat, that they then treat us with. So if you can stop that there, <laughs> then we're not, we can break that transmission of, of those bacteria into us. Plus we can learn an awful lot about the way that we would use phages. So that's the three areas of work that we in our lab. So there's, it's, it's not just me, there's four other academics and six postdocs and loads of PhD students. We have a lovely team of people doing different parts of this puzzle. Okay, so I'm going to just take you through a journey now as to where we get the phages from, because otherwise people always say, well, 
you know, you say there's 10 to 31, where are they? How do you find the right ones? So phage biologists do not generally hang out in very nice places. This is, <laughs> this is the major sewage works in Kampala. It was so smelly that half my students didn't get off the bus. <laughs> I, however, I was, I was uh, helping there. So you have to go to wherever the bacteria are abundant. So sewage works because we're generally interested in cheating human pathogens and they're associated with human waste. Sewage, sewage is a really good sampling space. Um, this is a big pile of horse muck, brilliant for Pseudomonas and E. coli phages. We found some really cool phages there over the years. And this is a sampling now for, we've worked on Borrelia, which is the causative agent of Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. So Lyme disease is carried by ticks. So to get the ticks, you have to go to where the deer are. So this is our local park in, in Leicester. And so we're drag, this is drag netting to get the ticks. Also, these students are wearing special socks, so the ticks are attracted by the socks. <laughs> and actually, the best, the most attractive student was this lovely French girl. At the, she, she was really covered in the ticks. They must have liked because the, the ticks are attracted to you according to your, well, according to people's microbiome. Anyway, so we we start so for that project, we we start off with the ticks and we we dissect the ticks to get the bacteria and the phages. So you go to where your bacteria are abundant, and then you have a bit of a hard journey because if you're interested in plants, so I, I really love botany, and if I want to go to study a particular type of plant like the chalk grasslands, I can just go there because for generations botanists have studied which plants live where and what they're doing, so you can just open the book and figure out what they are. So in phages, we're just way way behind that. <laughs> like no one really knows what they are or what they're doing or who's associated with what. So gradually, I hope that we'll start to write the book and then be able to better find environments that are full of the phages that we need. We can actually use um, artificial intelligence driven phage discovery to, to, to model different um, interactions between environments and known phages. So I'm working with phage biologists from all over the world, Denmark, um, Colombia, Malaysia, uh, in, on a specific project called the Phage Compass, where we're trying to um, better understand these relationships. And also going to places like this, this is in, in Malaysia, which is very species rich rainforest, which is not only the plant species are very, very diverse, but the bacteria and the associated phages are. So we're going to look in, in new environments for new phages. So having got the sample, what you then do is you then grow the bacteria that you're trying to kill. You add a little bit for your sample, and if a phage is in there, it will replicate in it. Uh, it. So you can see this is very similar, isn't it, to the antibiotic picture I showed you right at the beginning. So where, where there's um, killing of that, of that lawn, that phage has gone into a bacterial cell, it's replicated, and there's loads and loads and loads of phages. Um, so then you, you pick out an individual phage, some from these ones here, and then you and repeat this process many times. So you bring your, you basically tame your phage from just being wild in the environment of many to having those specific ones that you want to work with. We then go from that to then seeing well, what, what you know, what are they? Because you can't really tell from looking at them. As I said, they all look kind of the same. And this just now lists some of the bugs that we've been working on over the last, I don't know, nearly 20 years. Uh, so we've got big collections now, so people might recognise some of pathogens of interest, things like MRSA, Clostridium difficile, um, cholera, um, Acinetobacter. So there's lots of different, as well as some quite serious respiratory pathogens, there's lots, lots of different projects that we've worked on, and each one's taken probably you know, multiple PhD students to find the phages and, and then figure out their biology, look at their genomes, and then try to put that information together. So we have nice collections that we can then tailor to specific end user needs. So that's why we then can then work with like doctors or vets, depending on what the problem is. So we look at their morphologies and their genomes and try and integrate all this information. So we look at, um, at how well they kill. So not all phages kill equally. If you look at that graph, can you see there's a, just, this is just the number of amount of death you get over time. And the phage at the top, that's just killed like a few of the bacteria, whereas that phage 
um, there's one phage that's, where the line goes right down to five, that phage is able to kill everything. So, so naturally, you just have a, a, a natural variability in terms of aggressiveness within phages that are found. So for therapy, we try to find those ones that are, that are very uh, good at killing. So we get them, we look, at, we look at their morphologies and genomes. Then we go straight really to seeing how they work together. So it's quite interesting when you look at the, their interactions, so we call it a phage cocktail. <laughs> so essentially it's looking at um, some phages will work nicely together. So, that, so you combine the properties of two and you'll get even more effective killing than individual phages. And you also massively reduce resistance because if a bacteria is being attacked in two different ways, it can't, it can't make, we can't just become resistant to that as easily as if it's just one particular way. So we spend a lot of time doing that. Um, so this is the models I mentioned already, um, that we use different models to try to understand their behavior. There's no point in just looking at them in a, in a flask. So we use, this is uh, showing human cells. So we have human cells and bacteria. So phages will have to work within a, uh, if you're treating a, an infected lung, this is how a phage will have to see, it'll have to find those specific bacteria. Um, we use this model at the top a surprising amount. Um, it's, it's actually, my students always call them worms, but they're not worms, they're um, larvae of wax moths. Uh, but they're very, very good infectious uh, models to study infection. Actually, there's a group from Exeter um, who've, who've made very clean versions of these, which are excellent. But we generally buy ours from the pet store. They sell them to feed uh, <laughs> um, like geckos and so on. They cost five pounds for 200. There's no ethics associated with them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you get really, really good data <laughs> in terms of page combinations <laughs> and dosage. <laughs> and uh, so we've used these a lot before because it really minimizes the amount of work you have to do in higher organisms. You can get uh, great data sets first. Yeah, it's funny actually, I only started using that as an infection model because I had someone come to see me from India who wanted to treat uh, wax, the, um, the silk moths. So he was from Assam, he was funded by the Indian Silk um, sort of Foundation because they, they grow in Assam tea and they make silk and then they fog the, the tea plants with insecticides to stop them being attacked and it hurts his moths. Mm -hmm. So he was wanting to use phages to treat and he has, he's actually developed really good projects now on successful phage products to, to treat the moths, but he couldn't bring those moths over because they're very sensitive to traveling. <laughs> you can't even grow them apparently inside. They have to grow in, in the hills of Assam. So anyway, so we, we started doing it. We got these moths to, to, show, to help him, but we've been using it ever since as a model because it's really good. So we then have to scale up for animal work. You have to then scale up your production. So we solve quite a lot of just kind of fun practical problems. So you can't just grow phages in solution. If you want to give them to animals, you have to um, have a quantified amount it's easier if you embed that in the feed so we worked out how to spray dry the phages in a, in a sugar and powders and then how to embed that into feed and then with the human side of things as i said the main thing i've been doing is working with this lovely woman in my lab mel who is uh, also uh, she said so she's a clinical lecturer so with her we're mainly focusing on multi-drug resistant e coli and klebsiella that cause urinary tract infections so recurrent urinary tract infections are really miserable for people who suffer from them and surprisingly or to me at least when i started half of all the cases of sepsis are actually started off as a as a urinary tract infection so if you can prevent those infections then you stop sepsis so that's how the georgians use them they use phages for chronic infection and they save antibiotics when it's a really acute infection 
So with, with her, what we're doing, oh yeah, we're also working with this, um, another very important collaborator, Marie-Noëlle Vu, who is a public health doctor. There's no point in having a product if, if it's not useful, but if there's a clear economic and health need for a phage product, it's more likely to be accepted. So that's, that's one of the things that's led us to work on urinary tract infections. So we're doing uh, pretty well so far. We've got a really good collection of phages and we're just gathering the safety data that we need to be able to do a human trial. Just to say that phage research is not a, uh, or phage, it, it, it's not a problem specific, uh, AMR is not problem specific to the, to the UK. One of the things I've been doing over the last four years that I've really enjoyed and I think is really useful is to train academics in countries that don't have a huge body of phage knowledge. So I've worked with a woman called Toby Nagal from Phages for Global Health. So her, her whole sort of observation was the fact that she'd worked making anti-cancer drugs from Novartis for 20 years and then she did other things. And she realized that, you know that picture I showed you right at the beginning where you had all the people, that a significant problem in Africa, um, but there's just no phage researchers there, but there's really good microbiologists and vets and doctors doing other, other microbiology techniques. So rather than taking our products that we make to Africa, we just show a sort of two-week version of what I've given to you now, <laughs> how to find pages and isolate them, what they could be useful for. So we've started, we've, we've taught in uh, Kenya, Uganda, uh, Ghana and Tanzania, and they've all started their own projects, so that's been quite a lot of fun. Um, if you want to read a bit more, um, there was this nice article that was written by Rosa Ellis in the, in the Sunday Times. She wrote a nice article um, talking about uh, why phages could be useful. So we have um, a, a summary of some of these projects on our website at Leicester and there's a, this, this address here is a, a links to an article that a friend of mine wrote who is a French professor and it's a, an article called Neat Science in a Messy World and it's about <laughs> more about the cultural side of, of, of what's limited phages in a lot more detail than I could go into today. So with that I will end and happily take any questions that you may have. <laughs> You've been listening to Professor Martha Clokey talking about how viruses can improve our health. It was an Agile Rabbit event recorded at Exeter Phoenix.